Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 127, The Bulgar Slayer. Basil II was ready for the Bulgars. He slowly and methodically made his way into Bulgaria, and slowly and methodically took more territory, little by little. He established a base at Plovdiv, making the city impregnable and moved slowly outward. Captain Slow was conquering again, in his own very special way. Unfortunately, in 999, there was another Fatimid rebellion in Syria. Basil was extremely annoyed. He had already put these Arabs in their place and he was very unhappy about having to do the same job twice. Like the great Aurelian before him, he dropped what he was doing, mounted his entire army again and shot off into Syria to do battle. He smashed the Fatimid army so completely they begged for peace and he agreed a ten-year deal. This time, the Fatimids kept to their word. In the year 1000, Basil was back in the west planning his final campaign against Samuel. His generals were ordered to enter Bulgar territory, and soon they took the old capital of the Bulgar Empire, Preslav, and the city of Pliskova. The army ground out victories, never trying to do too much in one go, and never starting a battle they knew they couldn't win. The imperial armies ate up Bulgar land, slowly and efficiently. Samuel reacted to the Byzantine campaign bravely and with daring. He launched a massive raid into the heart of Thrace and surprised the city of Adrianople. On returning homeward with buckets of treasure, Samuel was intercepted near the town of Skopje by an imperial army commanded by the emperor himself. The daring king versus Captain Slow. Basil's forces stormed the Bulgarian camp, inflicting a severe defeat on the Bulgars and recovering the plunder of Adrianople. Skopje surrendered shortly after the battle. Its governor, Romanos, was surprisingly treated with kindness by the emperor. In 1005, the governor of Durazzo, Asholt Taranites, also surrendered his city to Basil. The defection of Durazzo forced Samuel into an almost entirely defensive war, and he extensively fortified the passes and routes from the coastlands held by Basil and his Venetian allies, and the territory remaining in his possession. During the next few years, the imperial offensive slowed and no significant gains were made. Basil, as usual, was biding his time and planning the best way to completely defeat his enemy. In 1014, at last, Basil was ready for the final campaign. Samuel resolved that he would defend the heartlands of Bulgar territory and he knew the imperial army would have to invade the country through a series of high mountain passes. The Bulgarians built ditches along the frontier and fortified many of the valleys and passes with walls and towers, especially the pass of Kimbalongus on the Struma River, which Basil would need to pass through to reach the very heart of Bulgaria. Samuel posted a strong guard to keep the pass safe. Samuel gathered together a huge army to face the imperial troops, some claiming it numbered as many as 45,000 soldiers. Basil II also prepared carefully, assembling a large army of his own and taking his most experienced commanders, including the governor of Philippopolis, Nikophorus Ziphias, who had conquered Pliska and Preslav from Samuel. When Basil and his army arrived at the entry to the pass, he found his way blocked by wooden stakes and fortifications, row after row. Xiphias had a look round and thought he had a plan. He found a small path through a wooded hillside which led to a ridge. Xiphias suggested he lead a small detachment of troops along this path and around the Bulgar army so it could be attacked from the rear. Basil wasn't convinced. He did things slowly and methodically, and this seemed a bit daring and risky to him. But Basil was a great leader of men. 
He realised that Xiphius thought his plan would work, and he trusted the general to carry it out. Basil fixed Xiphius with a stare and grimly nodded. The general could carry out his plan. Xiphius and his men crept through the woods and onto the ridge. Xiphius and his men crept from the ridge and placed themselves, ever so quietly, a little way from the rear of the Bulgar army. Xiphius and his men made sure they could not be seen. On the 29th of July, the Battle of Kimbalongus took place. Basil noisily attacked the wooded fortifications and the Bulgar army came to meet him. The fighting was fierce and very bloody. Then Xiphius and his men attacked from the rear. Suddenly Samuel was fighting an enemy coming at him from both sides. He led his soldiers bravely and they fought long and hard, but Samuel had been outplanned, outthought and outbattled. Most of the Bulgar army was slaughtered during the battle. Many men were cut down as they tried to run away and 15,000 were taken prisoner. It was a complete and total victory for Basil. It is at this point in our story that Basil II gets his nickname. He was a great emperor and an outstanding general, but, as we know, he was a cruel and ferocious man. It's what he did to his 15,000 prisoners that earned the emperor the name Basil the Bulgar Slayer. The terrible deed he committed after his victory has stained his reputation in history. He is known more for this one act of extreme cruelty than he is for his huge achievements. Basil decided to break the Bulgars once and for all. He ordered that all 15,000 prisoners be blinded, except for one in every 100, who was only to be blinded in one eye. He then sent this wretched group back to Samuel at Akrida. Samuel heard his prisoners had been released and went out to meet them, but the sight that met his eyes was so terrible that he fell unconscious to the ground. He was overcome with rage and grief and never recovered. Just two days later, Tsar Samuel of the Bulgars died. Basil's cruelty caused the Bulgars and other Slavs to continue the resistance, but without their great king, the fight had gone out of them. In February 1018, four years after the Battle of Kimbalongus, the Bulgars surrendered to Basil and all of their lands became part of the empire. Basil had won and he had won completely. The Bulgars looked forward to the future with dread. The terrible Basil was clearly going to kill them all. But he didn't. Basil showed his merciful and generous side to the Bulgar people. He had no quarrel with them and they were welcome in his empire. Taxes were low and the Bulgars were free to work and trade as they had been before. Not only that, now they were part of a great empire, they were safer than they were while they had been at war with Basil. Pretty soon the peace was accepted as normal and the new lands became two new themes, Bulgaria and Peristrium. And still the Bulgar Slayer was not finished. After subduing the Bulgars, he moved east and annexed some eastern lands near Armenia. Then, amazingly, he persuaded the Armenian king to leave his kingdom to the empire when he died, and Armenia became part of the empire again, without a drop of blood being shed. By the time Basil arrived in Constantinople, he had established eight more themes in the east. Careful old Basil didn't stop at just capturing territory. He built forts and castles to protect the borders. His defences were so good that even though pretty much every ruler of the empire between his death and the accession of Alexius Comnenus was useless, it would be 50 years before the empire lost a serious amount of territory. In 1025, Captain Slay began to plan a slow and methodical reconquest of Sicily, and the date of the attack was set. The invasion would begin in the spring of 1026. Basil, despite being 67 years old, was still physically strong and determined to win even more land for his empire. 
Like many other planned invasions though, the attack on Italy never happened. Basil the Bulgar Slayer became sick in December 1025 and died after a short illness. The greatest emperor since Justinian had almost doubled the size of his empire and made life easier for nearly all of its citizens. He had worn the purple magnificently for just a few days under 50 years. It's worth taking some time out of our story to assess the state of the Byzantine Empire in 1025 at the death of Basil the Bulgar Slayer. It had been nearly 600 years since the fall of Rome, and the empire was still going strong. It had existed for more time since the fall of the Eternal City than it had before the old capital was lost. The Roman Empire of Trajan, Hadrian, Marcus Aurelius and Septimius Severus was gone, and gone for good of course. In their day, it had stretched from Britain to Arabia and included the entire Mediterranean Sea. The power of the central organisation over the provinces was all-encompassing. The state really was in control. In the 200 years after Septimius Severus died, the empire changed profoundly. Internal squabbling and assassination of emperors was commonplace, and even great men like Aurelian and Probus were not safe from the army's regicidal swords. It took a man with extraordinary organisational skills and unyielding determination to put a break on the decline into chaos. The empire changed irreversibly. No longer was the fiction of the ruler as first among equals preserved. The principate in which the emperor was merely first citizen was gone for good. The emperors demanded obedience and grovelling. They were not to be trifled with. Diocletian's multi-leader system, though, didn't outlive him, and his eventual successor, Constantine, steered the Romans in a completely different direction. There was no more sharing of power. Constantine was the only and the complete ruler. His conversion to Christianity was only the last chapter in a remarkable life, one of the few men who can genuinely be said to have changed the world. The rise of the new religion caused a shift in the balance of power in the empire, which has only increased after Rome fell. The church became more and more powerful until the emperor was no longer so supreme he had control over everything. The empire morphed again, with the leader as subject to the teachings of the church as everyone else. This is demonstrated starkly by Ambrose's treatment of Theodosius after the massacre of Thessaloniki. The emperor was forced to do penance for his wrongs. The subsequent decline and fall of Rome in the west changed the empire again. After Anastasius stabilised and then Justinian rebuilt it, there was an air of success once more. The empire was still huge and still, by far, the greatest power in the region and quite possibly in the known world. It was still Roman in its outlook, but its nature and language was changing. By the time Heraclius had his victories over the Persians, things had changed again. No longer was Latin the language of the people and of the rulers. Greek had taken its place and the language of the empire would be Greek for the rest of its existence. No longer would the emperor be Augustus, now he would be Basileus, although the term Caesar for a junior emperor lasted a bit longer. By now, the emperor was not simply a man chosen to lead because he inherited the honour or because he took the job by force. The leader of the Romans was now God's chosen leader on earth. His power was divinely given. The rise of Islam and of the Arabs caused the next fundamental change. More than half of the remaining territory of the empire was lost. Egypt, Judea, Palestine, North Africa and most of Syria were lost to the new enemy and would never be recaptured. As the empire fought and was driven back on its eastern and southern borders, the tribes of the Balkans and other parts of eastern Europe seized their chance to take western territory. 
the size and power of the empire shifted as successful emperors and their armies won lands back while less successful ones lost it. Rome was lost forever, as was most of Italy, while the rest of the Balkans north of Greece and Macedonia fell in and fell out of imperial hands. Only the very southern part of Italy, Greece, Macedonia and Asia Minor, the area we now know as Turkey, remained continuously under the control of Constantinople. This was until the rise of the Macedonian dynasty. Basil I, the three military interlopers, Romanus Lacapanus, Nicephorus Phocus and John Zemiskis, and then Basil II, presided over 150 years of continuous success. Very little was lost and an awful lot was gained during these years. The Muslims were kept at bay and there was time to focus on the West. The territorial landscape of the empire was stabilised. Not only this, the scholarly emperors of the dynasty, Leo the Wise and Constantine Porphyrogenitus, introduced legal codes and other formalities which improved the way people lived. The treasury was built up and the empire was financially stable. Constantinople was as magnificent as ever. Life was good. By the time Basil II died, the empire had grown again to be at least one of the greatest powers in the region. Asia Minor, Greece and Macedonia, those territories never lost, were only the core of a large state. Antioch and the northern coastal regions of Syria were in imperial hands. The city of Antioch, one of the five seats of the leaders of the church, was a particularly significant gain. Imperial prestige was greatly enhanced by the control of this great city. In Europe, the lands now occupied by Bulgaria, Romania, Albania and the states of the former Yugoslavia were part of the empire. Also part of the empire were lands on the Crimean Peninsula, including the important city of Curzon and also the southern part of Italy. Both Crete and Cyprus were firmly back in the fold. Well, I'm really sorry for the spoiler, but this is as good as it gets. The remaining 428 years of the empire are a story of decline. There was some success, but it was always against the odds and it never lasted. The empire would never be great again. One of the strengths of the Roman Empire during its period of true greatness, from Augustus to the Severans, was that it could take a few years of bad leadership in its stride. Caligula, Nero, Commodus and the other bad emperors had a system around them which could absorb the effects of the madness or badness of these truly awful rulers. It was of course noticed by the internal and external enemies of the empire that there was a nutter or maniacal tyrant in charge, but the machinery of the empire prevented any serious harm. Eventually the bad rulers were assassinated and somebody better was put in charge, but the empire itself didn't really suffer. The Byzantine Empire was different. Bad leadership resulted in disaster more often than not. Any system which relies on heredity to provide its leaders will inevitably result in poor rulers being in charge at some point. The Byzantine Empire never had the strength to get by when a poor emperor was in charge. The external threats were too great. The success of the Macedonian dynasty only re-emphasises this point. A series of good and great leaders kept it and the empire strong. When the true emperor was too young or inexperienced to rule by himself, a military man stepped in and steered the ship. As soon as this stopped, it was downhill all the way. Basil the Bulgar Slayer was a truly great leader. He only failed in one critical way, but this failure helped to cause the chaos and crisis which followed his death. Basil had been 100% focused on running his empire and making it great, and he hadn't married or had any children. 
It was as if he hadn't even considered what would happen after he died. He had not taken time to manage the succession. He had no adult heir groom to follow. He had no child heir or wife to find a suitable regent. No, there was no son to follow in the great man's footsteps. There was just a worthless brother, and it was this worthless brother who became Emperor Constantine VIII. In every way, he was the opposite of his brother, and his short reign would not be a happy one. As the historian John Julius Norwich put it, Basil II died on the 15th of December. By the 16th, the decline had begun. Next time, we'll follow the beginning of this decline. So, have a great couple of weeks, and I'll speak to you then.